You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is one of the most common endocrinopathies that is affecting reproductive age women today. And the challenge of treating those patients both in everyday life and as well as when they consider fertility and reproductive insights, we need to work hard to be able to help these patients the best we can. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm joined with Dr. Sam Thatcher, MD, PhD, and Director of the Center for Applied Reproductive Science, and an expert in reproductive endocrinology who is the author of the best-selling patient advocacy book on PCOS, The Hidden Epidemic. Dr. Thatcher, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So we're going to be talking a bit about polycystic ovarian syndrome and the difficulty in how to treat these patients. And it's very common. Do you really think that one size fits all or do we really need to individualize these patients more often? I think that one of the most important issues is to consider that there's no cure for PCOS. And we have three objectives when we're addressing the treatment options available. The first is, is that while there's no cure, we have effective therapy for each of the symptoms of PCOS. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are easier to treat than others. But we have interventions that are addressed to the specific symptoms. The second issue is that I think that many of the PCOS patients have quality of life issues. And not only can we make them live better by intervention, the third important issue is by intervention, we can make them live longer. So I think you brought up two very, very good points, which is that we have to treat the here and now symptoms and also make sure we're treating and preventing problems down the line. And I think this is particularly true for the PCOS patients who happen to also deal with obesity. Wouldn't you agree? I certainly agree. Mm -hmm. And what do you think we should be doing specifically to treat those patients both before and after they choose to become pregnant? Unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot about being a female, but I know a lot about being overweight because I'm that. And if it were easy, I'd be a lot thinner. You would not be alone in this thought. And, and we understand, I think everyone understands, we're dealing not only with the United States epidemic, but a world epidemic. And with the increasing rates of obesity, so goes the increasing rates of probably PCOS, of diabetes, of heart disease. The problem is, is that we don't have a specific therapy that can address it. Now, we know, there's no question about it, that lifestyle intervention which I believe is the first-line therapy of any PCOS therapeutic regimen, is associated with decreasing caloric intake and increasing activity. Much easier said than done, but this is a situation where the weight is usually gained really relatively slowly, and it has to be lost the same way. Do you feel that the weight issue is more the cause or the effect of the PCOS? One interesting study is, is that we know that obesity increases pregnancy risk. There's no question about that. But we thought that obesity would also change fertility. In donor patients, when donor eggs are put into obese patients, their pregnancy rates are identical. So I think the obesity has an acts through increasing insulin and altering the way the ovary works. I don't think that necessarily obesity itself is such a big problem as it is the metabolic consequences that fall along with it, and especially insulin resistance. So obviously, as we want to reduce the diabetic incidences as people age and obviously hypertension and heart disease in general in these patients, reducing weight will help that with the lifestyle changes you mentioned. No question about it. The problem is, is that we're not to the point yet. I'm sure that there's enough money and big pharma 
that the solution for obesity is out there and will be found, but we don't have it yet. So presently, we have to chip around the outside of it. I can't wait for a pill that just melts the fat away every day. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be great. You know, I think that for these patients in general, treatment has to depend upon where they are in their life's desires. And as we know, younger women with PCOS often present with acne and irregular menstrual cycles and are very anxious about this. What do you recommend in treating those particular patients? You'll find a a major divergence between the medical endocrinologist and the reproductive endocrinologist. Most reproductive endocrinologists are very pro-oral contraceptive or at least steroid contraceptive uh, now some other choices added in to just contraceptive steroid regulation. Medical endocrinologists are concerned that oral contraceptives will increase insulin resistance. And pediatric endocrinologists believe that the young patient may benefit from metformin over oral contraceptives. However, as a reproductive endocrinologist, looking at the non-contraceptive benefits of oral contraceptives, I'm a big advocate of oral contraceptive use for cycle regulation and reduction of all the different risks that virtually all gynecologists know all too well. We'll come back to the metformin issue, but let's stick to the idea of the birth control pill for these teenage patients for a moment. And so do you think there's one particular pill over another that would be recommended? I have to give a disclaimer here, and that is I'm on the advisory board of Bayer Burlex, which promotes a drosperinone-containing oral contraceptive. I'm a big believer in drosperinone for several reasons, and I'm on their advisory board because I like the drug, not because they pay me to speak for it. And the reasons are that it is not a nortestosterone drug, so potentially has less effects on insulin resistance compared to other drugs. It's a more pure antiandrogen because drosperinone is very much like spironolactone, uh, not a medical therapy we've been using for PCOS for a long time. And the estrogen component of the birth control pill is quite good for reducing hair growth. But I think everyone has to remember that birth control pills are like shoes. They all fit your feet, but they all fit a little differently. There's more similarities than there are differences. And the most important thing is to find a pill that is best for that individual patient. Absolutely. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sam Thatcher, and we're discussing the challenges of treatment for women with PCOS. Dr. Thatcher, we were talking earlier about other options for therapy, particularly for the younger age groups and with other medical specialties that may not believe the oral contraceptives are the best for their patients. And one thing you mentioned was metformin. Can you expand on that a little? Well, I believe we were talking today because of metformin. Metformin issued in a revolution in our understanding of PCOS. Since it was introduced and since it became effective, or what we feel is effective in PCOS as a part of PCOS therapy, there have been more scientific articles written about PCOS than in the entire time from 1935 until its introduction in 1997. So there's no question about metformin having a role as adjunctive therapy in the treatment of PCOS. How do you think it works? First of all is it's only indicated for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, so we're using it as an off-label medication. But it's also, I don't have any idea about the number of patients, but I bet it's in the millions of reproductive age women that are using metformin for non-diabetic reasons. It works by improving insulin sensitivity. Insulin resistance is an inborn problem. You can think of it as a hearing defect. The body, the pancreas, the liver is born so it doesn't receive the insulin voice very well from the pancreas who's the speaker. And everything goes along all right except 
for two problems. The higher insulin level can drive the ovary crazy, and over long times, it can also have effects on blood vessels and health issues outside of PCOS. When someone's on metformin, is there any concern about long-term use in this medication? That's, a, I guess, a common issue. The first question is, when do we start metformin? In PCOS, we start on almost all of our patients. It, it must be remembered that it's only indicated for the treatment of diabetes, but it's widely used for non-diabetic indications presently, and it appears to be a very safe drug. There's tolerance issues, and most of the patients will have trouble with the diarrhea when they first start taking it. The issue being, the worse their diet, the more likely they are to have diarrhea. We use that when the patient comes in saying they're having diarrhea and say, great, it's working. So that the <laughs> diarrhea... I'm sure they're not... thrilled to hear that. <laughs> well, not so bad because they feel like that they... I use the analogy that they're using antibuse. Yes, exactly. Just like an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And when they take in more fat or sugar than they need to, it's going to dump it out. So that's a good thing. And in some ways, that's probably one of the reasons that they tend to lose a small amount of weight in the initial stages of the therapy with metformin is just because it curbs the appetite. It has an anorectic effect. Let's turn our attention for a moment to the couple that desires pregnancy. And in that patient who has PCOS, what would we recommend to her before she tried to conceive? I first would go down a typical list of preconception counseling. Smoking is no question about it having adverse effects on pregnancy. All the patients should be on folic acid, perhaps a little bit more, maybe not more than a milligram, but certainly a milligram a day. And you should look to see what medications they're on to make sure they're not on something. Some patients come in and they're on lipid-lowering agents or antihypertensives that may be more detrimental during pregnancy. But a couple of the little pearls is that there should be no washout period after the stoppage of oral contraceptives. Stop the pill and start trying to become pregnant immediately or Sometimes in patients that are found that we have trouble stimulating with clomiphene, we'll give a couple of cycles of birth control pills to regulate the cycle and then come back and look for a rebound out of the birth control pill. So I don't believe there should be this washout period because they may be missing a period of fertility. Do you feel that patients who have PCO when they are trying to conceive should have a different timeline for spontaneous attempt before we consider to intervene with artificial reproductive technologies? Well, I'll answer the first part of your question first, and then we'll talk about the second. The first part is, is that a physician shouldn't send the patient home who has cycles over 35 days apart and tell them to start watching their temperature chart and, and using an ovulation predictor kit. Any woman who has cycles over 35 days apart does not have a timely ovulation or they're not ovulating, period. That is an indication for intervention then. The intervention we're talking about is things like ovulatory assistance with something like clomiphene citrate. Or metformin. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of data and a lot of studies looking at clomiphene alone versus clomiphene and metformin versus metformin alone as the best option for patients with PCO. Can you comment on that? I know that I'm at odds with a recent article in the New England Journal that said that clomiphene was superior to metformin for induction of ovulation. Now, that is a well-designed study, but there are some problems. First is, is that we looked at about 250 pregnancies, PCOS patients we were following. We found that 52% of these patients were able to establish a pregnancy on metformin alone. Now, it took several months to do that, but metformin clearly was associated with a higher pregnancy rate without any complications of the multiple pregnancies, and during this time, they tended to lose weight and improve their overall health. 
So I don't know that if you brought in a patient and said, is it better to give them one month of metformin or one month of clomiphene, if they've not seen clomiphene before, clomiphene is probably better. On the other hand is a patient who's having a problem with obesity, insulin resistant, this patient would do much better with metformin. So knowing the PCOS patient that you're treating, the thinner patient is going to do better with clomiphene, maybe than the more obese patient who may do better with metformin. A special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sam Thatcher, who's been discussing with us the challenges of treatments for women with PCOS, and particularly when they are looking towards fertility. You've been listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157. For questions or comments, complete program information, and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to ReachMD.com forward slash Women's Health.